What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is brought to you by bellycatering.com.au. Guys, as we are clamping down in Australia, particularly on even harsher quarantine zones, the international border lockdown has happened, the local state border lockdown has happened, and COVID-19 is just not slowing down fast enough. So catering companies like Bella Catering have flipped into home delivery. If you guys go to bellacatering.com.au, you can find an insane array of beautiful home-cooked meals that can be delivered to your door. They are still an essential service. Why go out and brave shopping centers with absolute crazy people who want to sneeze coronavirus right into your face? Why not just stay online and order delicious catering from bellacatering.com.au? Glenn, Maria, the team, they're absolutely fantastic. Get onto their website right now. I definitely highly recommend the look of the butter chicken and the individualized $4 cheesecakes. Do it right now. You have to. And now, on to the show. All the President's Men is a miracle of all the right elements coming together. A miracle from that holy cinematic year of 1976 when it was one of the best picture nominees to lose to Rocky. Not only is it a film without a wasted frame, there isn't a moment which is not a wash in total clarity and awareness in its pursuit of the story. Whatever the process was throughout the making of the film, it not only somehow kept straight how much we needed to know, it laid bare the process of how the story that was being pursued became clear, fixated on the goal, and like its two lead characters, always aware of what the next question needed to be. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is really just a phenomenal writer, um, is the best way that I can describe him. And in writing about All the President's Men, he wrote, he referenced Vincent Camby, the late, great Vincent Camby's review. And he said, uh, Vincent Camby said rather, that Alan J. Pekula's film is the thinking man's jaws. And this man said that it's just as compulsively rewatchable, not a single dull moment. And that is exactly 
why I wanted to get him on the show. And just for added pressure, after already being a guest on a One Heat Meter production, I've thrown him into probably one of the most iconic moments in American cinema. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest, Peter Avellino. Peter, thank you so much for being a part of All the President's Minutes. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a thrill to be here. <laughs> so, you've written you your uh, blog, which is Mr. Peel's Sardine Liqueur. Um, yeah. You write, yeah. Yeah. which which I heard on that on Increment Vice, you're like a big regret because it was an inside joke, and you're like, now I have to I live with it when I'm trying to get people to the blog. But uh, I your big sprawling epic review of presidents. What? How 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 long have you had a relationship with this movie, and then what sort of instigated your inspiration to go? Because you do quite extensive, thorough, and not necessarily um, driven by the zeitgeist of what people are talking about. You're very much like a person who's deeply inspired by a topic, and then you tackle it. So, what was that compulsion to to write about presidents, and what is your compulsion still to continually rewatch it and revisit it? Well. Uh, I'll be honest, but part of the compulsion to write about it at the time was partly as a joke because, <laughs> um, it, it, well, I love the movie. I, I can't really speak to the first time I saw it, which was, I'm sure, in the VHS days and when the DVD came and I, and I got that, which was on the Warner Brothers Controversial Classics box set, I think, with where it's with Network and Dog Day Afternoon. And, right. you know, it was a you know, I couldn't tell you how many times I've seen it. My sister lives in Bethesda, which is a suburb suburb of uh, D.C. And whenever I go to visit her and I'm taking like a little pouch of DVDs to sort of watch on my laptop late at night, I'm always bringing that one. It sort of gets me in the mood for the <laughs> visit. And, you know, I've time through the years anyway. But when I wrote it, it was partly as a joke because the post had just come out and yes. I guess I figured right about the post is like, well, if I write about the post, then I should write about all the president's men. Oh wait, but if I write about all the president's men, I should write about a heartburn right after that. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha, which is what I did. A joke for me, I suppose. Um, and, and it was also one of those things of trying to challenge myself because for a long time I've had this thing of, you know, it's that sort of mental list of movies that it's like, why, what do I, what do I have to add to those movies? And you can imagine what those movies are, whether oh, yeah. they're Jaws or whatever they are. And all the presence men seem to kind of fit with that. But I thought, you know what, let's go for it. Why don't I, why don't I just aim high <laughs> and try? Because I do love film anyway. Yes. So it just, and it, it, for the very first time, I wound up reading the book out of doing that, out, you know, out of curiosity and to sort of flesh out my thoughts on it. And I found the book to be absolutely fascinating. And not only that, it occurred to me that there are all these adaptations that people talk about them in relation to the book, The Shining or whatever it is. And all the presence men, no one, that, that doesn't really seem to be the case. People talk about, you know, there's the real, the real life aspect of it and the movie, but the book seems to sort of get lost in between those two things, as far as I, you know, that, that's just my perception. I don't know. And it just feels like this should be taught in schools as an adaptation. Yes. Because as an adaptation, it's brilliant. I mean, you know, the things they take, the things they don't take, you know, how they transform some of it, you know, the, the pieces from the second half that do get wind up in the movie, like the Segretti scene and yes. things like that. It's, 
it's a, it was a phenomenal read, and it made it, it made me fascinated by the film all the more because of that. It, you're so right, because I go, you know, and I think it's great that we tackle that straight at, from the outset, is because I think about it all the time as there is so much of adaption, um, especially in dense novels, that is omission. <laughs> it is calculated omission. And in this movie, that's what it is. It's like, we can't tackle this. It's too, like, we can't, it, if I go down this corridor, it opens up here. No got to cancel that keep the focus and it's that laser focus and it's when you find directors and 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 just even writers or screenwriters that that adapt stuff and and there's a like a perfection and there's a clarity it is that laser focus of we will not be distracted by digressions that books naturally allow you to do like you have to stay on point or stick to a character there's always you know from a, a completely populist movie but it's like um uh, harry potter and the prisoner of azkaban where the the kiran directed one which kind of set the template for the rest you know he came in and he's mm -hmm. like it's called harry potter like this should be about him I don't care about anyone else. <laughs> like, no, no offense. He's like, like, but he's like, I don't care about anyone else. Like, we need to laser focus on him because that's what's going to help us tell the story. There are other digressions and bits and pieces that the book will allow those flourishes, but no, this is on him. And so I think that that's what I, I, I marvel at. And it, exactly right. I read the book in preparation for this project. It was simmering and I was shocked just how much wasn't in. And I was fascinated. And that's why when you, you know, you revisit other show, great shows, now the TV version of Slow Burn about the Watergate saga or the podcast and, and you, you look at how many books branched off, it's like they did so many great things. And the book bit of Segretti is amazing because that is like a almost a year-long wrestle to get Segretti face-to-face -face to actually say anything and be candid and go on the record. And so that, you know, that that's a tension um, – that's a tension in and of itself that you, you you're, yeah. you're absolutely right. But yeah, no, it's a, it is a masterwork. There's no two ways about it. It's a masterwork of adaptation. Absolutely. Yeah. And totally I, I love it also, and I want to jump onto this one, which is it's so hard. And this is where, where it actually might've been easier to talk about something like heat, which sort of kicked off the, this, this mad cap, approach that I do because mm -hmm. for a long time it's arguing something that I feel like was an undeniable classic where others were kind of some of us were like man fanatics were like yes you know this is this is true we're disciples this is absolutely true and then others were like hey oh I haven't seen that in a long time yeah that was quite good and so I think like with those kind of movies um you feel like you tackle it, but when you when you butt up against the all the president's man or an apocalypse now or a dog day afternoon in your in your world, you're like there are certain or the Godfathers. It's just like when you've got those classics, it's like these stone cold classics. How mm -hmm. the hell do you challenge yourself to penetrate them in the same way? And I love that that was your approach when you were tackling it. It's like how do I actually find a way into wrestling with this text that's going to feel like I'm having a dialogue with it right now. Thank you. I mean, I guess that is what I try to do and I'm not even sure I have a firm answer as to what that <laughs> is beyond dive in and try to wrestle it and try to say things other than, Oh, this is great. Oh, Redford is, oh, Gordon is great. Because there has to be more than that. What is the movie at its, at its essence? Yes. What is it doing? What is it doing to me? Mm. Um, am I getting at it? Why am I watching it countless times? I wasn't, uh, I wasn't reading about Watergate in the 70s. I was three. 
So <laughs> why does it have? What is it about the reality of it and as a movie? Because I, you know, as time has gone on, I've started to think about how there's some movies that are made these days that are almost like you watch them and it's not too different an experience from just reading the summer, the plot summary on Wikipedia. Yes. There's nothing very thematic about it. It's just plot beat, plot beat, plot beat, plot beat. And all the president's men could very easily be done that way. It could be a professionally made piece of work that would just be like going down the list of the expected things, but they turn it into cinema by, by these certain moments, by the, the famous shot of, Redford, Redford calling Dahlberg and just, you know, the, you know, the way Deep Throat is shot and just the way that there are times where the movie just sets back and just has them have them drive through DC. And we see the, the scope, the scale of the city and just, we follow them. And, and, you know, I suppose the scene we're going to be talking about as well, that it becomes, you know, a film, a work yes. of art. Yes. And that's, that's that peculiar touch. He's just, he, he's, you know, you talk about, uh, I, I find any film that he makes is so deeply cinematic that it's like, even if the quality of the film or the, the, the each individual plot beat or story beat doesn't necessarily land or resonate in every single way, it's still such a fascinating viewing experience. Like I think, you know, people talk about parallax and people talk about this, um, I'm and include obviously, but I'm such a huge fan of presumed innocent as well. I just will always want to point people back to that movie and say like, this is such a, I mean, it's Harrison Ford, maybe never better, um, uh, uh, as a ca- a pure character actor. Um, so yeah, he's, it's, 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 that's for sure. yeah. Innocent. yeah. He's, he's, yeah. yeah. And I, I, I have a weird fondness for starting over as well. I yeah. keep thinking I'm going to that one, but, but that's, <laughs> I can't, I can't say that all the president's men is his best film because honestly I haven't seen there. I still, there's still a few I haven't seen, but it, it's my favorite. It feels like it's probably the best. It works better than parallax or clue to yeah. me. Yeah. I'm really great. The, the criterion is beautiful. Oh, both, both on but, criterion are gorgeous. Those, both of those. Yeah. yeah but there are those points in clue where, you know, I feel myself getting lost in the weeds of the murder mystery and that sort of thing. You know, it's about Fonda and Sutherland and the framing and all that stuff. I mean, there are great scenes and I just get lost in whatever <laughs> story. And Parallax, which I haven't seen for a couple of years now, it's really all about the, the test sequence to me. Yeah. That, that's Parallax as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, All the President's Men is more than just a sequence. Yeah, I'd say it. There, there could be there could be a movie with its equivalent of the deep throat scenes, and that's the only thing of worth in the movie. Yes, but no, no, no. All the president's man is everything in it works. Everything in it is fire. Yeah, yeah, and it's also like there are such huge dramatic things about mm-hmm. this story, whether it's things that end up in Nixon, whether it's stuff that is tails off, like, fro- you know, the subject of Frost Nixon, whether it's the final days as a telly movie um, that, that they made afterwards and or um, even the <laughs> rather terrible Mark Felt movie with Liam Neeson. Um, there, there, I did not see. Uh, look, Why I, you make a movie about Mark Felt and not call it Deep Throat? Just call it Deep Throat. It's, Come on. It's, I have no, like... <laughs> It's so obvious that you're like, we should be calling this deep throat. No, 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 dude. It's like, are you insane? It's deep throat. 
it's like it's like having it's like having the most iconic character like Batman and like no, nah, we're not gonna call it Batman. It's like wait, yeah. wait. All right, Chris Nolan, we'll give it to you because it's the second movie. But if you don't call the first one Batman, I'm gonna like you fucked up. Like it's so dumb. Anyway, look, it's probably good that it's not Deep Throat because then people won't associate it as necessarily closely with this. Like, um, no, embrace it, embrace it. It's, look, it's just, it's just really bad. It's poor casting. And look, Neeson, you know, Neeson can play soft and dramatic, but I just don't mm-hmm. think that, like, the, the structure of that story, it need, it, it's, it needed a Hal Holbrook type. Like a guy who's unassuming. When, when, when you've got a big powerhouse like Neeson playing the guy, it makes it obvious. You actually want the internal turmoil of someone who could do that, who could really mm-hmm. give that performance and like blend into the background, but jump out in significance as the story's going around him. But yeah, it's very overly dramatized and bad. Um, so let's dive into this scene proper. A really, uh-huh. a really stunning Which scene. Which is a very intimidating scene. It really is. I, it, it, well, that was my first thought, which was how <laughs> intimidating. My second thought was, to be honest, when I watched it the other week before you asked me if it would be this scene, when we got to this scene, I hadn't seen the movie for about a year. So when we got to the scene, I just curiously checked the timer on my DVD player to see how far in we were. And it was like, we're a half, we're a half hour in already? <laughs> yeah. We're not minutes into this because this movie goes like boom boom we're all we're already here and yeah. you've, and you've got to think you know in it's like the 24th minute really is their proper first meet cute it's like they've been in rooms together but that interaction of like I took a look at what you were doing and I rewrote it that interaction before they join forces on the story together is 24 minutes in so it's not in the first couple of minutes we've had a, a good and exceptionally deliberate and efficient time run up. And now these guys are in it. Like now all the doors are closing within four minutes. And then <laughs> it's like 24th minute, six minutes later, like all the doors are shutting and they're, and they're following the leads and we're right here. And it's like, now we're going to dwarf these guys. We think that this dynamic yep. duo is going to take them out and we're going to get to this dwarfing moment, but it is truly a brilliant shot. It is a camera carefully designed on a pulley shot yeah. in like, I think they took like an hour to do two different takes uh, to to do that. And they've basically, and then a couple of really tactical edits to help the time, the passage of time move. And they're kind of pulling up and doing their very best steady cam motion. This would be a drone shot in 2020. Uh, Absolutely. It wouldn't be as interesting a shot. There's a little bit of wobbling in it. And so what? So what? Um, Exactly. So what? Because, you know, a, a drone version of this, would not be as interesting as this is. I mean, it's just, you kind of get this tactile feel from the movement. And it's also, you know, everything, you know, it's getting very clear that this is not just some penny, anything. This is, this is dwarfing them and everything is going on around them. And these guys are just, you know, they're, they're really starting to understand the gravity of it. Like, why are we not finding what we're looking for? They're just trying to us in all this. And, and what are we not finding? What are we missing? And, and also just from a technical point, it's the audacity for this shot to 
because not only of what it what the inference is and its metaphorical significance and just underscores the whole thematic drive of the movie, but it's like yeah. them going into this sacred place, Library of Congress, and going, "We need this shot," and getting mm-hmm. it. <laughs> like in in a world of in a world of drones, it's like I've got a friend who sort of, and I won't mention his name right now. He'll know who he is listening because he facetiously pokes fun at Australian films. He's like, "Oh, look, a drone shot. It must be an Australian film because like we have less money in our productions." <laughs> and so as soon as he sees, oh, it's an, oh, it must be an Australian film. <laughs> they needed to save money and make it look like it was grandiose and had great scope, and they're using a drone. Um, so I won't say who that is, but but I love this in the audacity of. I need this shot. And I'm sure that in many ways it's not in the script. It's just a, a flourish and then them finding a solution to do this and having to do it so quickly and then the resulting absolutely just iconic moment. So we're going to take a quick minute now, Peter and I, to watch the minute together. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Aid once at a social occasion. So? He might confirm. Do we need WH and White House? Not in the a second paragraph. paragraph. I don't think we do. Just White House would be enough. Why not? Just use White House. Isn't that just a stunningly put together scene? Yes. And I always yes. forget yes. about that beautiful still shot looking at Congress and then the door sort of, it's almost like a smash cut, but not like the smash cut of the doors opening because it's, they're just being shut out. It's so beautiful. Yes. And also my thanks for just, we, we got a few seconds of Jack Warden in there. So, you know, Jack Warden, because I love Jack Warden in this movie. You and know, um, You know what? While COVID-19 is got us all locked in that now binging on every single movie Jack Warden is in is not a waste of your time. I'm recommending this triple feature, 12 Angry Men, All the President's Men, and then Dirty Work. Just, you know, go the Norm MacDonald. Go the Norm MacDonald. I think if you go those three, you can't, you're going to get all the shades of Jack Water. Well, you know, I just got Disney Plus and I put on the Great Muppet Caper. And who's in the Great Muppet Caper? <laughs> that movie is Jack Warden as the newspaper president. So, oh my God. And he's great too. Um, a, a, a long time ago, a very long time ago, I went to see Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Lodester Plaza in New York, biggest theater in New York. It's no longer there, of course, but uh, and I wanted to see Dracula because it was the last week. I was like, oh, just go see Dracula last week. And it was the middle of the day. The place was empty, of course, and I'm leaving. This old guy passes me. He looks and he's like, oh, one, two, three, four, five people all in this big theater. And I'm like, oh. Uh, yeah, okay. I'm a weird old guy. Okay. <laughs> That's Jack Warden. What the hell is Jack Warden doing here? Oh my, oh my God. God. I did not, 
I did not talk to him any more than that, but uh, that that's my Jack Warden story. Oh, um, bless but his heart. He's in this movie. He's amazing. He's so good because it does all the shades of Jack Warden as well. I think a lot of people love the bluster, like, hey, you guys are on the story, don't fuck it up. But I, my favorite scene of the movie with him in it, Peter, is the when he- Howard, they're hungry? Yeah, pr- previous to Howard, they're hungry. When he's sitting next to Woodward, looking uh-huh. at Woodward tell Martin Balsam's character that, like, outline in the story. Isn't that what you, when, when Balsam's character says, isn't that what you'd expect him to say? And he goes, yeah, but I didn't even mention Watergate. I asked them what his duties were at the White House. And he's just sitting there looking at him and there's like this wordless encouragement, like, please fulfill the destiny that I think that you have in you. And I just, lo- I love it I, because it's got his wry smile. It's got his cheek and he doesn't even need to say a damn word. He's just there being the powerhouse that he is and what what more would you expect? He's awesome. Yeah. Now I got to go watch that moment again. Wow. Yeah, but exactly. <laughs> and I just like that little bit because it's just a very brief bit of basically the three of them are just kind of collaborating on the story together, getting it right right before Bradley comes in. It's just it's a very non fussy, non dramatic little thing, but I like that scene. I do, I do. And going back to the Library of Congress shot, if we could just talk about David Shire's score oh. because I love David in this film and we could talk about David Shire's score longer than the score in the film because I don't know if it's 15 minutes or what but uh, but it just it, it, it makes you want to focus it draws you in and it's just it it never really feels like it it completes itself it's sort of left hanging in the in in throughout the movie and at the very end of the movie it just it provides just the right tone just the right texture that's never overdone. It's but when it's there, David Shire, like, and it's so funny. It's I've been doing this project, and one of my other favorite films of all time is The Conversation, and the Shire score for that film too has such that quality. It is so identifiable, and it is so perfectly attuned to the tone of exactly what the movie is and what it, and what the score needs to do and how to balance for such a an audiophile movie in the conversation everything is about the recording and it's so not about the score necessarily and it's that selflessness of the score going no don't do it don't use it don't use it and then when it comes in the restraint not to blow you away and it just kind of lulls you and then it is there and you don't it's kind of un and then it like triggers little m- moments in your brain as you know, film writers and film critics like you and I are like, there's been no score until this minute. There's been no right. score. <laughs> and when it comes in, it's so perfect that you're like, oh, okay. This is what, this is this movie. It is just perfection. And just like, yeah, I think something to be said about restraint in a movie score to, to help complement the, whatever we're working on. But yeah, we could, we could spend five hours on David Shire scores easily, easily. Even though I almost half wanted to say Dave Grusin at first, just because there's such a set of these guys. <laughs> uh, no insult to either of them whatsoever. It's just sometimes I confuse the two of them. I can't help it. <laughs> That's totally fine. That's totally fine in my mind. <laughs> so we're here in this minute. It's, it's, those beautiful fade cuts. There's one particular fade. I think it's about 20 seconds in where we're slowly coming back. And then when it comes in and we actually see them become like a little, 
a little quadrant of this gigantic circle um, that's in the middle of the Library of Congress. That's that that's that moment that we were you know we were talking to before of like it is just doing exactly what it needs to 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 underscore this this is bigger than them and that and they might be gaining awareness of it right now but it we're gonna that's the only lead that's the only time we're going to be ahead of them in a way is that this is way bigger than they realize it is right now as they're tinkering through these cards that's right that's right absolutely yeah so what else about this moment and this framing and this final bit of uh, Jack Warden smash cut walking down the stairs. I love that. I, I, I love that they're. I love that they're still not together either. So they're together in the frame in this beginning of the minute, but they're still kind of walking apart. There's still that like, I don't know whether it's, whether they're quite not in unison yet. They're not standing to the same stutter step as they're leaving or entering this place quite yet. That's true. I mean, they are still. Yeah, I mean. There are points when they're sort of walking apart from each other later on, but that is true. I hadn't really thought about it that way. I mean, they're starting to get close to each other at this point in the film. It's an odd beat because there are some odd beats in the movie that seem to be covered over by ADR dialogue, like how we get we lead into the Penny Pizer scene, things like that. Yes. And, you know, Redford does say, wait, I once met a guy at a social theater. And <laughs> yeah. You'd think we would cut there at that point, but we don't. But it doesn't matter. I mean, it, it, in a few minutes, Bradley's going to shoot all this down, buried in, inside someplace. And this is just going to be a dead end. They're starting to get the gravity of it all. Yes. But this is going to be a dead end for this. And that's when Redford has to get to deep throat because there's really no other option at that point. Yes. Um, but it, it is funny how, you know, this big moment leads to kind of, it's kind of nothing at that moment in time because yes. they can't find it. They just can't. It's not there. They know there's something, but, 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 but they can't get to it. And they, and they almost want that front page story to agitate. They're like, I just want to, if we put this on the front page, they're going to say something and it's going to. It's going to, it's going to just that little bit of agitation is going to shake out someone and there's going to be a loose end somewhere that we can start following. And you got to love Bradley's just, you know, I mean, I think everyone wants to talk about Bradley in this movie. It's so hard not to talk about robots as Bradley, like as cool as, as cool as it gets, as cool as anyone has ever been in a movie. Um, But yeah, he just, I think that that gets to what you were talking about, what we were talking about at the beginning is this weird thing of, there is a compulsion where there's this soaring moment of like, we've got something, we're onto something, this is bigger, and then going, no, it's not. And then having mm-hmm. to go back to the drawing board and not take a setback in such an, I don't know, like a cataclysmic setback, because it's not, because life is all about setbacks. But in that brief moment, there's like, it could be this cataclysmic thing that, oh, we're just going to cancel the story. And it's like, no, we should do better next time. Okay, let's do better. Yeah. And then you get back to it. And that is, yeah. there's something so heartening about that. It's like, okay, well, that's the, yeah. that's my whole life. <laughs> yeah. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. No, he just he keeps pushing them. He keeps pushing them. Get me something better. Get me something better. When is somebody going to go on the record on this damn story? Get me something better. Yes. Yeah. And it's that, I think, when I think about what 
continues to resonate with a lot of the people that I'm talking to and yourself in particular is, and, and, and when we are trying to wrestle with the text and sort of really unpack, you know, what, what Vincent Canby was talking about, the thinking man's jaws element of it all. Like, why am I still watching people talking in rooms together? Um, it is because I think, I don't know, it's, it's so like, it's got you, it's got you like a, it's got you like, it's, it's hooks in you. And, and I think there, that there is something to the newspaper movie that, you know, I, I you know, the fantasy elements of it, like we're, we're Redford or we're Bogart or whatever, chomping on a cigar, pounding away at a typewriter. I wish I could pound away at a typewriter right now. <laughs> got to get, got to get the story. And, and it's a, it's a fascinating genre and all the president's men kind of strips every, Strips all the bullshit out of it, basically. Yes, yes. That it's just, it's about get, getting the story, finding the story. You know, the famous thing about how there's no real melodrama of love interests and things like that. Yes. Which, you know, it, it, even, you know, as great as it is, even Zodiac does have that. Even Zodiac has the scene where Jake Gyllenhaal basically says, this is what I got to do. I got to go look him in the eye. Yes. And we don't really get things in all the president's men. because. You know, to use some sort of screenplay par- parlance, it is kind of bullshit, basically. <laughs> All the president does strip out a lot of the bullshit. I, you know, I mentioned in our emails to each other about the William Goldman thing that there's um, this William Goldman interview that I've in this book that I've had for a long time called The Craft of the Screenwriter, which yeah. is an amazing book um, that I've had for years. It is long interviews with Chayefsky, Goldman, Paul Schrader, a few other people, wow. Robert Town. Um, a lot town talking about Chinatown a lot and Goldman gets into detail about a lot of his career, including all the president's men. And he mentions the Bradley story about, um, about Hoover, um, where he says, I fucked up, but I wasn't wrong. And he kind of indicates in the interview that Goldman wanted to bring that back at the end. Um, to sort of have them say it at the end. And in my mind, even now, I've, I've, I read this interview so long ago that even now, in my mind, I hear that unspoken in the final scene, as if Redford is saying to Hoffman while they're walking the car, we fucked up, but we, we weren't wrong. Yes. And you almost get the feeling that, you know, they that was kind of a, a, an element of screenplay bullshit that they took out of there. You could imagine that being at the end of an Aaron Sorkin script. Yes. It's, it's, it's a screenplay concept but he was like no 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 we're not doing that we're not doing that it's like the movie just kind of gets rid of a lot of that stuff and it's also because what the compulsive rewatches of this movie do the power of that scene because he seems like he seems infallible and what and impenetrable for so much of the movie. And when he tells these guys and he knows they're on this and he knows they're tired and this is, you know, sort of about three quarters of the way through the movie, that scene is such a powerhouse. It's like, I was right. (laughs) I was right, but I fucked up. Yeah. And so it's really nice. It's actually really refreshing for him to say that. And if you go, if you do a callback, it feels cheap. It's not a comedy show. 
you're not layering in, you know, like a, when a comedian does a great callback in a show or a stand-up special, it's like, oh, that is good. Like, you know, they've layered it in and they've waited 35 minutes of other jokes and toil and they layer in a beautiful callback and you're like, oh, that's great. Like, that's clever. Like, they've done that really. But it doesn't seem to endure like when you're watching something over and over and over again. In fact, the callback becomes less and less good every single time. It becomes like annoying. Yeah. You're like, oh, okay, fine. It's a callback, whatever. But in this, you're so right. It's like, However, that, and this is a great thing that I think is going to come up in this series a lot. And I talked about it with Jim Hemphill and I've talked about it with many people. It's like the alchemy of all of these big personalities together and not mm-hmm. one of their voices necessarily overarching everything. So you've got Goldman's incredible script. You've got then Pacula making his and Will's in, in tandem, making their artistic flurries. You've got the personality of Redford as the kind of, maybe the auteur of this entire project really. Um, and, and then Hoffman and the needs for both of those guys as the script goes on to basically know each other's parts inside and out to have this beautiful dialogue and continuity in their conversations and the way that they interact. And you've then got all of that plus the extended cast and how they're all co- complementing one another. It doesn't seem, it seems like there's this perfect chaos of, like true collaboration because no one really gets everything that they want for the better. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's yeah. like, I'm yeah. just trying to figure it out. Cause it's like, especially when you said with Goldman, it's like, I wanted to put that in and you're like, I'm so glad you didn't like, you know, <laughs> you know, you won the Oscar for not putting that in really like, you know, <laughs> well, he basically says, you know, he basically, um, he basically says anything that has to do with one shooting star. If he wasn't there, they cut him loose. He wasn't around. He doesn't have a lot of answers. He says a lot of things were shot and cut. He mentioned something about the scene with Bernstein and, uh, and an ex-girlfriend fighting or something like that. And, um, you know, mentions the possibility of why Catherine Graham wasn't in the movie. And, he, and, and it was Faye Dunaway. Waved- I think it was Faye Dunaway that was, that was cast or, or at least talked to have been cast as a... Yeah. Well, Dunaway would have been really young for that part at the time. I mean, Goldman mentions Alexis Smith. Oh, yeah. It almost seems like, it almost seems like uh, something that maybe Lauren Bacall would have been perfect for, except I think she was divorced from Robards by then. So. <laughs> you know, one thing I remember, because reading it in the wake of the post, is that Catherine Graham barely appears in the book anyway. Yes, no. It's like there's one big scene and a couple of other little things. And it sounds like there may have been one big scene in the script at one point. And Goldman seems unsure why why the scene fell by the wayside, um, but he does allude to the fact that there were a bunch of things shot and cut, which of course happens with every movie anyway. And and you know, like we said, like I said, some of those points where you can kind of sense the ADR coming in to like lead us to the next scene is kind of an indication that maybe there was something bigger lost here or there. But but we're so hooked into the film that none of that really matters. No, none and, of that really. And you kind of even we know the how the sausage is made. So for folks who were saying like when it's with ADR, it kind of feels like if if the voices it's more obvious in older films, but if it feels like the voices are a little bit more omniscient and they come out of like sound a bit more like a voiceover narration, even just for a split second, and you can't see the character's lips moving. That's what we're talking about yeah. with ADR. It's the post recording that happens after the film. But I, but I you know I I love a bit of ADR if it means saving a whole scene and keeping momentum. 
because like there's nothing mm-hmm. more crippling to really great films than like scenes where you're like, I would, I wish we could excise this. This would be a better movie if this scene wasn't here or if this was just referenced or, you know, you didn't get this callback. It's like, you know, in much in the same way that it's like, you know, sometimes whole films in series, you're like, that could have been a flashback for five minutes and we would have had the same the same effect, level of affect on that, like, a, you know, or referred to once or twice and we don't ever need to see that whole storyline. It's fine. Um, but, yeah, it's just really interesting Um that they made that it's choice. Part of the feeling of this film that the momentum is never lost as much as the movie knows what its specific set pieces are. Redford on the phone with Dahlberg, Hoffman going to visit Jane Alexander, which is in itself this whole 10, how long is that scene? 10, 15 minutes? It's yeah. basically, you can almost imagine somebody wondering, is this going to kill the momentum? And it's almost like that's where the emotion of the movie appears her saying if you guys could get john mitchell that would be beautiful yeah that's that's the most emotional moment in the film practically and it's the most restrained you can see that that's why i love hoffman's performance in that because jane alexander is so precise and still and then that that mitchell line is where you really access how deeply she cares about everything that's been going on or everything she's seen because she's seen fucking everything in creep at that yeah. point and that's so wonderful in hoffman's performance he's like this powder keg of energy and he has to keep all of it inside and he's yeah, just yeah. and I've, I've had 25 coffees and i'm going to explode but yeah. and he's just so calm and so slow in the way that he pronounces what it's just it's such a great it's such a great counter counterpunt like you know a counterpuntal scene or contrapuntal scene or you know just a, a contrasting scene to his entire performance because he's just like so energetic such a great offshoot and then he has to do the woodwood and just be very oh, and what would happen my memory's not great and he's just taking notes on everything that he can yeah. such a beautiful scene but yeah no like that again when you look at how important and how the staging of that scene works. That scene flows like it's multiple scenes, even though it's one, you know what I mean? I think that that's one thing that's so interesting about that later scene is how far away Jane Alexander's bookkeeper character is. And then she gets closer and closer and closer and closer and closer. And it's like, they almost feel like different scenes. It's really, really magic. One final question I've got for you. A lot of folks, especially journos that have been talking about, have talked about like journalistic process and how like newsroom movies and you, you even said it yourself, like newsroom movies are a genre in and of itself. And this one kind of strips away the bullshit. And I find that I call like, there are certain movies I call like genre killers where they come in and it kills the genre. Like if you have the Godfather and Godfather part two, it like ruins mafia stories for like a decade, even two. Like, uh-huh. it's like kind of up to good fellas when people are like, okay, you can have another mafia movie now, but like everything else is just, it's it's destroyed and i feel like that with movies like the searches i'm like just end westerns now you have to come back as revisionists because we did it like it's over you know and and i feel like this is a bit of a watershed moment for that newsroom story there are a lot of great newsroom stories around this time but i feel like this one kind of does it what do you think why do you think people go back to this now in the trump era like what what are we still going back to this movie for so many times now well, I think part of the, the reason is we want to believe that there are guys like this who can basically uncover these amount of truth. It does 
you know, it's a very cynical thought that may be true that it feels a little bit, bit like some people have and nobody really cared. And that's the, that's part of the world that we're living in now. And that's, that becomes depressing because seeing what these guys did, they talk about it in the movie when they say, um, you know, there are thousands of reporters in this town. We've got five guys working on Watergate. When did we get the monopoly and wisdom? And, um, and, you know, they were the ones who persevered. They were the ones who thought there's something here. We need to follow this because this leads somewhere. We don't know where, but it leads somewhere. And you want to believe that that's still possible because, you know, we're so distraught and destroyed and cynical and depressed and scared that it's like we want to have the faith in our journalists now, whether print or internet or on TV or whatever, that these guys can, you know, can, you know, succeed the way we want them to succeed. You do. That, that's, you do a beautiful. That's one thing. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. You do a beautiful justice to that ethos in your piece where you write, the typewriter is, the typewriter is the weapon and the word is the bullet. And, yeah. and at the end, when Nixon is being sworn in, the typing continues, the only yeah. weapon they know. So, exactly. Peter, thank you so much for a wonderful chat. Thank you for being on two shows in One Heat Minute Productions. This has been so awesome to talk to you about this movie. And at a time right now where there is just such chaotic rain, chaos reigning in our regular lives, it's really nice to sort of look back and uh, unpack this really powerful piece of movie art with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Ah, he's far too kind. That was my incredible guest, Peter Avellino, another great guest on this show, at Peter A. Peel is where you can find him on the Twitter sphere, and his blog, Mr. Peel Sardine Liqueur.blogspot.com. That is Mr. M R P E E L S A R D I N L I. Q-U-E-U-R.blogspot.com. You can find all of his long and thoughtful pieces there. And if you do follow Peter on Twitter, he is um, a great follow as well. Um, just check out for the avatar with Elliot Gould's face in it from Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. This has been another One Heat Minute production. Thank you so much for listening along. We have an amazing array of shows. One Heat Minute, obviously. The last 12 minutes of The Mohicans. Increment Vice. Josie and the Podcats, all the President's Minutes which you're listening to today, and our daily podcast, Con Tan Gen, which is a tight 10 talking to a whole stack of folks in isolation, in quarantine, sort of accounting for in this community everything that's going down. Listen along to that daily. We're going to have great shows coming up for you, some unannounced stuff which we are going to announce to tease for the future. But if you want to support us, we do have a Patreon, and you can find links to that on oneheatminute.com. If you want to go to our site, oneheatminute.com or incrementvice.com, you can find out more about the shows. And if you want to go to graffitiwithpunctuation.com, you can read about Contention and our upcoming six-part limited series, Josie and the Podcasts. Until next time, thank you so much. Subscribe, rate, review, share. Thanks so much for listening.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.